Good morning. Good morning. Hey, if you are a guest with us, we're glad that you're here uh, this morning. Um, I want to get us uh, kicked off. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to finish chapter 2 today. We're in a series uh, walking through the book of Acts, and so we've uh, we're going to be in this series for quite a while this year, taking a couple breaks to go to the Old Testament and, and learn um, as well. But we've made these uh, Acts journals available, so if you have one, I encourage you to grab it. If not, you can pick one up uh, out in the lobby uh, and encourage you to take notes and study this with us um, this year as we kind of walk through the book of Acts uh, together. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And to get us started, I was reading um, this past week from one of my favorite authors, and he made a profound point that I just think kind of tied into the sermon as a matter of fact, I was reading it so late in the week, it didn't make it to first service, but uh, you'll see it up on the screen. He said these words. He said, I cannot be me by myself. Uh, it's Eugene Peterson. He said, I cannot be me by myself. Well, we'll explore that here in a minute. Back in 2003, 2004, um, I was a student at Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I had made the decision to transfer down to Florida Christian College in Kissimmee, Florida, just outside of Orlando. And part of the arrangement with the transfer was that I was going to get an internship uh, at a church in South Florida, which is where I'm from, and I was going to get a chance to do this internship uh, in a way that was unique. I wasn't actually going to study under somebody, uh, but instead I was actually going to be the, the youth minister in charge of the program. So it was kind of a unique situation. I was looking forward to it. And so I'd made the transfer and began to do an internship at a, a First Christian Church of Pompano Beach, Florida, way south on the East Coast. Uh, when I got there, uh, I was excited and pumped to, to start this. It was, a, it was a really cool church, very diverse uh, part of South Florida. And so they, uh, had, I had to learn how to communicate this gospel message that I had only responded to three years uh, before uh, to a pretty diverse group of kids, many of them from other uh, countries, particularly there was a high Haitian population. And so I got to interact and hang out. It was just the, one of the times of my life. I just enjoyed it so much. Now, when I got there... Uh, they gave me my office. They put me in the room with the water heater, and uh, no joke, not even kidding, it was literally a closet uh, that they put a shelf on that I could use as a desk, so they kept me humble, uh, so that was good. Uh, one of the, a lot of good stories came from that, that season. One in particular is I was introduced to a lady who had a pretty profound impact on my life. Uh, she was the secretary at the church there at uh, First Christian in Pompano Beach. And um, a lot of things stood out to me about her. Uh, one in particular, she was very patient with me. I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done. And she patiently worked with me and kind of uh, gave me second chance and third chance and fourth chance and fifth chance, and, and we could keep going. Okay, <laughs> She needed to give me a lot of chances. Um, but the other two things that really stood out to me about her was, one, it was very evident she loved the Lord uh, very much. She had a very uh, deep faith. In addition to that, she loved the church uh, very much so. And she was kind of the glue that held the place together. She cared about people so deeply, and it impacted me in a really profound way. My internship time ended, and I ended up uh, taking a position at a church plant, a church startup in Orlando, Florida. And uh, that's where I ended up meeting my wife uh, at school, at the college there. We ended up getting married, and some of you know this story. We ended up coming back up uh, to the Midwest so I could go to graduate school, and ultimately in 2008, uh, landed here at New Hope and joined the staff in 2009. Um, and here, here we are, um, all these years later. A few years into joining New Hope, I came into the lobby one Sunday morning, and much to my surprise, I saw that church secretary from all those years before down in a small town in South Florida. And I said, Maggie, what are you doing here? 
you know, it's a, it's a medium-sized church in the middle of Whitestown, Indiana. The last time I saw you, we were both working at a small church in Pompano Beach, Florida. What are you doing here? And she kind of had the, well, what are you doing here kind of thing. And we, I said, well, I work here. <laughs> I have a reason. What are you here for? Well, I just, she said, I just moved here to uh, Zionsville and moved into Zionsville Meadows. And, and now I'm, I'm, I, I got invited to come to church, and here I am. And, and so then she got in, involved. She didn't wait very long, got involved. And here's the cool part. This lady who had an impact on me many years before became a Sunday school teacher in our children's ministry and has taught three of my four children in Sunday school and has become one of their favorite teachers that they've ever had. Um, No offense to anyone else, but Maggie means a lot to my kids, all right? (laughs) In fact, she was in first service, and she was teaching during second service today, uh, all these years later, continuing to give. I tell you that because that's a beautiful picture of church. She taught me what Eugene Peterson wrote, and it kind of made sense. I can't be me by myself. I I can't grow spiritually without being connected and influenced by other Christians. And she had the same impact that she had on me she's now having on my children. It's just this really cool uh, interaction that God has blessed me with um, in my life. That's the lesson we're going to learn from the text today as we begin to study uh, and bring our our study of Acts chapter 2 to a close as we prepare for chapter 3 next week. Uh, If you remember, we said this at the very beginning of this series, that when the church started, it was a movement, not an event that you attended. It was a movement of people. It was a group of people that came under this conviction, and we came to the conclusion in week one that movements move. And, And if you're not moving, you're not a part of the movement. And if you're not a part of the movement, you're really not a part of the church because the church started as a movement of people taking the mission of God to the world. That's how it began. It's fascinating to me that the mission actually came in Acts chapter 1. The church came in Acts chapter 2. Christopher Wright is a pretty, pretty profound author, and he wrote a book called The Mission of God's People. And as I was revisiting that book this week, I came across this. He said this, God did not create a mission for his church. He created a church for his mission. You see, he had the mission all along. And it was to bring about this message of salvation to all people. And he brought a church into the picture to carry out that mission. Movements move. And that means that the church that is not on mission is not not really a church. So we're called to live on mission. And this mission began in chapter 2. As Acts chapter 2 gets started, right? Chapter 2 is started. Uh, we see that Peter stands up and he preaches this message after the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles. And last week we looked at that sermon that he preached. He got up and he declared the gospel truth. And all of these people that came from all over the world, they're together. And they say, hey, we get it. We agree with what you're saying. How do we respond to this? You remember on week two, or week one, we actually talked about this head, heart, and hand uh, initiative that we're adding on to our vision to be disciples. It's just a way of understanding how well we're doing at making disciples and being disciples. The head being the way you learn, the heart being the way you're transformed, and the hands being what you're doing with it. See, these, these people, they heard the gospel. They got it here. They responded to the gospel when they were cut to the heart by being baptized into Christ. Because Peter said, hey, you want to become a Christian, you got to repent and be baptized, each and every one of you, so your sins are forgiven, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They responded, but now the question is, What do they do now? How do they begin to live? So you got to remember who these 3,000 people were, 3,000 people that responded to the gospel that day. Who were they? Well, Acts chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 tells us that they came from all over the world. I mean, they came from all these different regions, and they came in for Pentecost, and they begin to hear this gospel message proclaimed, and they respond to the gospel, they become Christians. But here's the thing, that's not their home. And they have to learn how to become, how to live as Christians. 
And so as they begin to stay put, they, 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 you have to answer the question, like how do they know that if they go back home how to live this life? And the text begins to tell us something, but here's what's really important for us to understand. And this is just, those of you who like to take notes, this will make you happy, okay? Uh, when you read through your Bible, you have um, really two kind of things that take place with teaching and, and other things. You have some passages, in your new, particularly in the New Testament, that we would say are prescriptive. Everybody say prescriptive. prescriptive. I'm just making sure you're right. So prescriptive means it's, a, it's, it's telling you exactly how things should be done. All right? And so if, if the author in the New Testament writes something that's prescriptive, it's like a prescription. You need to take this. You need to do this. This is exactly how you need to do it. An example of that would be Matthew chapter 28. When Jesus gave the great, what's known as the Great Commission in verses uh, 18 through 20 there in Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus said, anyone who's following me, here's the prescription. Here's the prescriptive part of the text. You have to go and make disciples. And he didn't say, except if you're introverted. And we say, well, Jesus, what about me? I don't like people. I actually have a really strong allergy to humans. And I don't really want to be a part of all that. He says, no, it's not optional. You have to go. Now, he doesn't say you have to do it exactly. He says you have to go make disciples, introducing them to Christ, baptizing them in the Christ, and then teach them, disciple them to obey everything I've taught you. How you go about doing that, based on your giftedness, the way you're wired, he says there's room for that. The prescriptive part is everyone goes because movements move. In addition to prescriptive text, you've got what we would say are descriptive text. Everyone say descriptive. Okay. A descriptive text in your New Testament is something that's just describing something that took place. Okay. It's when the author will say, hey, I'm describing for you what happened here. Our text today is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's important that we understand that before we get into it. Okay. It's a descriptive text. Now, here's the thing about descriptive text that we have to be careful about. We can and we absolutely should learn from them. We have a lot to learn from descriptive passages. Um, as Luke begins to describe what took place in the lives of these 3,000 believers, he kind of lays it out for us. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Acts chapter 2, and uh, we're going to start in verse 42. I was going to have you stand to read it, but Ben already did that. Thank you, and, and it's good. We read through that passage together. So now let's kind of walk slowly through it. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, Luke describes for us what happens. He says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Let's pause there for a minute. He begins to describe, if you take notes or underline or highlight, I'd encourage you to kind of underline that phrase, and they devoted themselves. The word and connects it to those 3,000 people that were just baptized. So he's saying 3,000 people responded to the gospel, became Christians, and then they, those 3,000 people, uh, devoted themselves to these things. Here's why I would say that. This is, this is kind of an important thing. I, I think in this passage what we have is uh, these same people staying put. You see, they got baptized into Christ. They didn't know how to go and live for Christ. They needed to be disciples. And so this devotion that they're displaying to these things is coming from the apostles trying to teach them. So when they go home to their hometowns, they know how to live this life. Here's the evidence for that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 10, one of the locations given to us about where these people came from for Pentecost was Rome. Later on in the book of Acts, when the apostle Paul begins to express his desire to go to Rome to be with the church, there's already a church in Rome. Who started that church? It wasn't Paul. He didn't plant that church, right? But we do know in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, that there were some from Rome who came at Pentecost, who responded to the gospel, who were discipled, and then went home. They went back to their homes. 
Okay, and so we have this group of people that are here and they're being devoted. Now, as I was processing, okay, what, what do we mean when we say devoted? Uh, the best way to illustrate it kind of happened in my life this past week. I grew up uh, most of my life playing basketball. It was the sport that I kind of gravitated toward at a very early age. Played it all growing up, played basketball in high school, and, and uh, played it uh, just my whole life, okay? Just enjoyed it so much. So it wasn't a surprise when my kids uh, got really interested in basketball, and they began to play as well. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, my, my three oldest out of my four are finishing their basketball seasons. And um, we had to divide and conquer. We had three different places to go for three different reasons. Don't you love that? When you make a request, say, we got three kids, can we stagger it? And they're like, nope, everybody plays at this time in three places. I love it. It's so good, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, it's so no surprise they got really into basketball, and they've enjoyed it quite a bit. So it's also no surprise that a big topic of conversation in our home this week was the tragedy that took place with Kobe Bryant. So we tried to process it, talk to the kids, talk to them about, hey, like this, you know, just tried to help them understand it. And then one day this week, I was driving my oldest to school, and uh, we were talking, and he asked me, hey, hey, Dad, and I'm not quoting him verbatim, he'll get on me. Like, I didn't say it exactly like that. I'm giving you an idea of what he asked me, okay? Uh, uh, He said, hey, what made Kobe Bryant so good? Like, why is the whole world paying attention to this? Like, it seems like everything is just locked in on what took place. I explained to him, I said, hey, buddy, I was like 12 or 13 when Kobe Bryant went into the NBA. Um, And so I I watched his whole career. I watched the whole thing. I was like involved. I enjoyed watching him. And um, along the way, one of the things that stood out to me, now there's a lot to it, so I'm not speaking to everything about Kobe Bryant, just this one element, where I rarely saw an athlete that was so devoted to their craft. If you've paid attention to the news, you've read articles or watched the news this week, then you will know Uh, that word devoted came up quite a bit. You've got articles and stories and people sharing memories of how devoted he was to becoming the best, to doing the best, to being remembered as the best. Now, good or bad, they're saying, hey, that was the most important thing to him. I heard one story of a rookie who came into the league, said he showed up to the arena uh, two hours before the game was going to get some shooting done, but when he came in, he realized Kobe had already been there for an hour and a half and was exhausted, and he just said, if this is the standard, I don't know if I'm going to make it in the NBA. Because this guy is just so devoted. Here's the point. It didn't take long to look at this guy's life and realize what was important to him. Didn't take long to evaluate his life and come to the conclusion that you could figure out what he was devoted to. Likewise, it didn't take long to study the early church, to take a look at the early church and hone in on exactly what they were devoted to, what made uh, what was most important to this group of people, what made them stand out. So think about it this way. Uh, Dr. Luke, he wasn't there. Okay. He's doing a journalistic research project. That's what he's doing. He tells us that in Luke 1 and in Acts 1. Meaning he's doing all the research. He's interviewing all of the witnesses. He's gathering all of the facts. He's getting all of the details for the events put together. And then he's writing it in a way that his friend can understand exactly what took place. So if that's the case, Luke goes out and he begins to do the research and interview the people and gather the facts and get all of the events and everything put together. And he realizes, man, After doing all that work, these people are completely devoted to these things. I mean, everyone seems to agree these four areas were vitally important to the church, and so he writes them down. The first is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's not just a casual reading of the text. They weren't just saying, hey, it'd be cool to memorize one or two verses, put it on a calendar or a coffee mug, and that would just be awesome for us. Like, No, or they didn't say, hey, we'll pick a verse or two that just really makes us feel good or... 
It wasn't a casual reading. These people were devoted. They understood when we go back home to our homes, if we aren't exposed to the word of God, to the apostles' teaching, if we don't know it, the culture is going to eat us alive. We have to be completely and totally prepared for the culture that we're walking into. Now, here's what comes to my mind as I begin to meditate and kind of think about this. I'm concerned for the church. Now, there's a lot of good going on. Many people will say the church is in decline, and I like to say, hey, stop looking at only America. The church is not in decline worldwide. She's growing. But there are some concerns. I think, for one, we, uh, as a church, are oftentimes far too satisfied with far too little exposure to the Bible. Far too satisfied with just a mediocre uh, attempt at reading Scripture, and we're not being discipled. And I made a list of some things that I've encountered. We, we do this, right, because we assume we already know it. Many people grew up in church, and like, I don't really need to hear it anymore. I don't really need to study that anymore. I kind of already know what all the Bible stories are. Other people, they, they accept distractions. Like, they're perfectly okay with being distracted. They have excuses, and they say, my calendar's too full. I keep the run out of time. At the end of the day, I just don't find myself having the time to do it. And they get offended when they're challenged to do more. And someone who loves them says, hey, you got to really expose yourself more to Scripture. we got to spend more time reading the Bible. We get defensive. But these early Christians, they knew that their culture was going to destroy them if they didn't know what the apostles had to say about living. They had the advantage, according to verse 43 in Acts chapter 2, the advantage was that the apostles were right there in the flesh doing things, miraculous, incredible things. So they not only heard their teaching in person, but they saw all these incredible things that they were doing. But here's our advantage. We have it right here. It's all written down for us right here. Everything they did, everything they taught, we have it right here. Here's what's, in, here, here's what's fascinating to me is we, none of us have an excuse. If you can hear my voice right now, you have no excuse for not having access to this. It's everywhere. The problem's not the access to the word. It's the, the devotion that we have to it. It's whether or not we're actually devoted to the word of God teaching us devoted to what God's doing in our lives through the teaching of his word. Here's a question. If Dr. Luke were to do an investigative research project on your life as an individual, gather the facts, interview the people, if he came into your home, gathered the facts, and looked at what was important, if he looked at our church, would he conclude that we are devoted to the word of God? Second thing is they're devoted to fellowship, and I would say it's a kind of a church word. Here, it just kind of it means being together. They were devoted to being around each other. They were devoted, they were devoted to every day just be having exposure to other believers, making sure that they were learning how to live this new life. Remember, they didn't know how to live in a Christian community yet. They had to be taught, so they had to learn it. It didn't come easy. Many of you know that. It's not easy. They had to push through discomfort. Anybody ever been dis- uh, uncomfortable at church? Okay, well, I'm uncomfortable now if you say no because you lied, and that makes me uncomfortable in church. We've all been uncomfortable. They had to push through the awkward interactions that we have with other people in church, those awkward surface-level things that we want to get deeper, but it's harder to get deeper. They had to push through hurt, people hurting them. They had to push through forgiveness, forgiving people that had hurt them. They had to push through greed and, and, and their comfort levels. They had to push through all these different things, learning how to do it, and they didn't just run away when it got hard. They leaned in. They tried their best to learn how to live this life together. They had to know. They, they, they were learning. There's no way I can go home to my hometown and actually live for Jesus if I go by myself, if I don't create that community, if I'm not around other people. I have to be around it. What they learned is a, an important lesson for us to learn is this. If you are a Christian, you must, absolutely must be connected to a church family. This is the heart behind the writer of Hebrews in chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, when he says, 
Do not forsake the assembling of the saints as is the habit of some. He's not saying because God is keeping an attendance record and you're going to pay. That's not his deal. His deal is you can't flourish. You can't be you by yourself. You can't be the Christ-centered, God-honoring version of you by yourself. And so the question is, are you connected to that church family? They met in big settings like this, and they met in smaller settings, and that's why we have groups. Are you in a group? Are you connected to a group? Why? Because you don't need it? I mean, the text seems to tell us that you absolutely do. We need to be connected to one another. You might be wondering, Rob, are you telling me that there are no Christians without churches? You're telling me that without a church, I can't be a Christian. That's not necessarily what I'm saying, but I like the way one person said it. He said it this way. That's not necessarily uh, exactly what I'm saying, but like people without homes, those who are homeless are not healthy. Healthy followers of Jesus are connected to their church family. Discipleship happens in community. It happens in community. They're also devoted, it says here, to the breaking of bread. We would say that's communion or the, the Lord's Supper. So the, they were consistently practicing this, this mealtime where they would pause in the midst of everything else that was going on to remember, vividly remember, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and all that that truth meant for their life. And so all the time, it says they were daily meeting in their homes and they were weekly gathering in bigger groups and they would have this moment. Now, communion for them, the Lord's Supper for them, looked different than it does for us. But remember, this text, is, is, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. What we learn from it is the importance of taking communion as often as we gather together. We should be constantly pausing to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and all that it means for us. How we go about doing it, we have some uh, flexibility there. So when we pass the trays some weeks and we say reflect on that, that's perfectly acceptable. My favorite is what we're going to do today after the sermon. We have communion stations. And you're going to grab a cup and a piece of bread and you're going to huddle up in a group and you're going to pray and talk together. I love that. For them, they would have sat around a table and eaten a full meal. They would have had dinner or lunch, all, all these meals together, and they would have had what was called an agape feast, a love feast, where they would include the elements of communion and remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Here's the thing. This is why we, as a church, will always, always, every single week, we're going to take communion together. That's why it's important for us. Here's another thought. How would these 3,000 people, if they got baptized into Christ and then just left and went on their way, how would they know how to do communion? How would they know how to pause and participate in the Lord's Supper? See, they were being discipled, being taught how to participate in the Lord's Supper and the importance of pausing in the midst of your week to participate in this incredibly important thing. And they understood what we need to understand today is to remove that from our gathering, to remove that from the church, to remove that from our services and our time together would be to risk forgetting why we gather at all. I think it's possible to make an argument. This is just Rob. I think it's possible to make an argument that communion is perhaps the most important thing we do when we do gather. And when we forsake taking communion, we forsake participating in this meal, we run the risk of forgetting why we're gathering all together. The spotlight is always on Jesus. Always on Jesus. Last is they were devoted to prayer. This is the one I find most fascinating, and here's why. Luke includes this. And oftentimes we'll read it and we'll think, man, I know I'm supposed to pray, right? Like I know I'm taught as soon as I become a Christian, you got to pray, you got to pray all the time, you got to pray. You can't start a meeting. Is a meeting a meeting without starting it in prayer, right? And you got to end the meeting in prayer. And you better pray before you eat or you're going to choke on your food and die. And then what happens, right? And like you got to pray, always pray. We know we have to pray all the time. We get it. There's something else going on here though. And I got to wonder, this is me, I wonder if these new Christians, these 3,000 new believers were drawn to the way the apostles prayed, the same way the apostles were drawn to the way Jesus prayed. 
Remember in Luke chapter 11, this group of followers of Jesus, they had witnessed his miracles. They had heard his teaching. My favorite thing is they'd watched him get cornered and Jedi mind trick everybody out of it, right? No one ever cornered Jesus and got away with it. He was just so brilliant. And he would just, oh yeah, well, what about this? Like, we hadn't thought about it. Of course you haven't. You're not God. Like, and it just back and forth and they never cornered Jesus. Okay. I love that part. These guys had witnessed all of that and they come to Jesus in Luke chapter 11. And the one thing they ask him to teach him is what? Man, would you just teach us to pray like that? Would you just, when we hear you pray, the way you talk to God, the way you depend on God. I, there's a lot of other things that would be cool to learn, but man, I want to learn to pray like that. And I got to wonder if these young Christians heard the apostles praying and thought before we go home and start living this way, we got to know how to talk to God like that. You ever been taught how to pray? Regrettably, we just assume people should just learn how to pray. You ever had somebody sit you down and say, hey, let me disciple you. Let me teach you. Let's, let's talk about prayer. Let me ask it this way. Have you ever heard somebody pray and thought to yourself, man, I want to pray like that? It doesn't take you long to be around me, right? And when I pray, to hear my father-in-law in my prayers. Because when I hear him pray, I think to myself, I just, I want to pray like that. And it's, it's influenced me. In the same way, the prayer life of the apostles was influencing these young Christians. So when they went home, they gathered in their communities, their prayer life would influence others. Jesus taught them how to pray. Let me ask you this. Dr. Luke were to do a journalistic research project on your life, in your home, or in this church, would he conclude that we were devoted to prayer? Would he conclude that you were devoted to talking to God and to praying with him consistently? See, the time spent in this little descriptive passage prepared this movement to keep going prepared these Christians to go back to their homes and live in this unique community that stood out consistently. And as they learned this and they devoted themselves to this, look at how Luke describes it in verse 43. He said, and when they were devoted to this, this sense of awe just kind of fell on every single soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And they had this gift. They got to see the apostles do all this incredible stuff. We get to read it and study it and understand it too. And when they were devoted to these things, I don't know if you've experienced this, but they had this profound sense of awe come about. You see, when the presence of God is in a place, there is this hushed, almost quiet sense of awe that does not depend on theatrics and lights and, and, and a big production. It just depends on whether or not you've been devoted to hearing from him by interacting with his people and remembering him in communion and, and learning from his word and, and praying. And when you do that, there's this presence that you just know he's in your presence. Have you felt that? And you got up and got ready to come to church this morning. Don't answer this out loud. Did you show up to this gathering fully expecting to experience the presence of God? When you come together with other brothers and sisters in Christ, is it more than something you attend 1.6 times a month? It's the average. Is this a gather? Is this like a family reunion to you where you get together and you're just like, yes, the, the, the presence of God is here with us. And I know when I get together with my brothers and sisters in Christ, when we gather together, it gives me everything I need to turn around and be sent out from this place. That's what's happening in this passage. The gathering prepared them for the scattering. And each and every week when we come together and we, we gather together, we are preparing our hearts, our minds, our, our very souls to then scatter and take this and spread this movement to keep going. And that's what we're reading here in this passage. 
Some like to read what took place in 43 through 45, and they like to read into it this socialist agenda. They like to say, hey, Christians should, man, if you're, real, if you're real serious about your faith, sell everything. You should never have anything nice. You should never, and just, you got to go away and just never enjoy life. And I'd say that's absolutely not what's happening. Some have formed cults and groups and said no Christian should have any possessions, and they go live in caves, and, and, and they're miserable. And it's just not, it's not biblical. Here's the problem. On the flip side of that, many Christians come in and they're so defensive against that other view that they never sacrificially give, that they never meet the needs of the people that are around them. You see, it's not socialism being promoted here, but at the same time, it's not neglect. It's not neglect either. Luke is describing for us, remember, this group of 3,000 believers were from other regions, other towns. That means their jobs and their homes and their resources were not there. But then you had some of the believers now that were from that region and that, and that area, and they begin to say, I'm going to leverage my resources to make sure you can stay here, be discipled, and prepared when you go. I'm going to leverage everything I can. We're going to sell what we can because we need to be prepared. We need to be discipled so we can go. You want to know why we give to missions every week? Because we're leveraging our resources to give it to those who need to to continue to spread the gospel where it hasn't been spread. You want to know why we tithe every week? Why we say 10% is because you know, we're trying to tell you that if you don't give 10%, God's going to punish you. No, that's not what we're saying. You're like, wait a second, what did he say? <laughs> it's absolutely not the point. The point is we are leveraging everything we possibly can. It's not about 10%. It's about leveraging everything we can when we give to advancing this movement of God among his people. That's why we do it. The point of the, test is not, the, point of the text here today is not some uh, political agenda. It's not. The point is that the love that Christians had for one another expressed itself in a very practical meeting of the needs of those who are economically weaker. You saw a need, you met a need. These people understood what God was doing was way better than money. How God was moving was way more fulfilling. And look at what happens. Look at verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You know what that's saying? It's saying they were content. Anything they gave, they never missed. Saw a need, they met a need, they, they tithed, they gave, they gave above all of that. They were meeting the needs, leveraging their resources for the movement of God, and the text says that they had glad and generous hearts, they were content. When was the last time you were content? Truly content. Praising God and having favor with all people, that means evangelism took place. See, when the church lives this way, when the church meets the needs of everyone around them, when the church is on this mission and this movement is taking place, people can't help but notice. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, people saw that and they were hungry for it. Their contentment. Glad and generous hearts literally translated would mean joyful and satisfied. They had no problem giving anything away at that moment because they had found something better than it. That doesn't mean they had to. Remember, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Acts 4 and 5 will clarify for us that you're allowed to have nice things. You're allowed to save for the future. You're allowed to be financially responsible. This is not telling us just to, to be irresponsible. What it is telling us is to keep your eyes open, stay alert, meet the needs of the people that are around you. It's what it's calling us to do. And it added depth to their message. When people saw that, they thought, oh, those guys aren't just talking. Like, there's actually substance to what they're teaching and what they're talking about. you got a group of people devoted so much to the message and the mission that they'll suffer for it. They're willing to suffer for it. They no longer live only for themselves, but they give themselves to each other. They're so joyful in Jesus that they don't need money. They believe so strongly in what God is doing in their gatherings. It's characterized by prayer and a sense of his very presence. People take notice of that. 58 men showed up yesterday for the barbecue club that Ben started. And those that didn't are like, wait, that was yesterday? Yeah, I've heard that numerous times. 
Here's why. I showed up a little bit late because remember the sports thing? They didn't listen to our plea to move times. It's all right. Whatever. Just hate them. Anyway, uh, I showed up a little bit late. And I came in and I see 58 men sitting around and I kind of walk around. I just, I love those environments. I'm talking to different people. Here's something like cream that rose to the top for me that I noticed about that gathering. Every single one of them was hungry for it, not just the wings. They wanted to connect. You know how that, because they said, hey, what are some other things we can be doing? Oh, let's go golfing over here. Let's go shooting over here, like uh, shooting targets over here. Let's play flag football over here. And everybody said, yes, 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 yes. I want to connect with other brothers who have similar values that are devoted to the same things I am. They're hungry for it. Here's the thing. Here's from my heart. It's a warning. This all sounds awesome. But you need to be aware. As these early Christians, and you're going to see this as the book of Acts progresses, as these early Christians began to gather together and be devoted to these things, they came to the realization that as devoted as they are to learning from God's word, as devoted as they were to being together with genuine Christian relationships, as devoted as they were to remembering the sacrifice of Jesus in communion, praying together and meeting one another's needs, as devoted as they were to that, they realized they had an enemy who was equally as devoted to destroying them, to ripping them apart and dividing them, an enemy who would go to no, no length, would be too far for him to come in and create division through gossip and slander, a lack of forgiveness, hatred, frustration, pride, greed, comfort, an enemy who would love nothing more than for us to see the church as just a place we sit and watch something take place and we go home. There's a, there's a reason. Peter, the very one who preached this first gospel message and is beginning to disciple these believers, would later on write to believers in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He would say these words. He would say, hey, be alert, be aware, watch out. The Bible says this all the time. Watch out. Your enemy, your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a lion. He's constantly looking for who to devour. You know the easiest target? The one who separates themselves from the pack. The one who gets so distracted by their own pride and frustration that they can't see around them. They're not healthy. They're not watching out. Maybe you've seen this video. It's a little bit extreme, so watch out for little ones. <laughs> Got these two gazelles that are fighting. You notice these two in the front, they notice something's coming in the background, that dot that's moving closer. They see it's an enemy. They decide, hey, we're watchful. We're watching out. Let's get out of here. But then you got the two that are fighting. And their pride's gotten in the way. In the church, that shows itself as an opinion, frustration, a lack of forgiveness. And we're not going to stop just focusing on ourselves. We don't care. This is about me. This is about me. This is about me. And then it's too late and the enemy comes like a lion and he devours. The Bible's not playing around. Our enemy is waiting, waiting for us to separate from the pack, coming ready to attack. And the Christian who thinks that they're strong enough to fight that enemy on their own is no better off than that gazelle. You can't be you by yourself. You just can't. So these early Christians, they teach us a valuable lesson. They devoted themselves to teaching, to being together, communion, the Lord's Supper, praying together, meeting one another's needs, knowing that we are living on mission. So let me close out with this question again. If Dr. Luke were to do a journalistic research project on your life as a Christian, in your home, evaluating your family, or in our church, what would he conclude we're devoted to? Let's pray.